It's a lot, so <laughs> I need the prompting. Thank you. Okay. Okay, now we, I invite Mike Little for the sermon. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's beautiful. I have not been out here before. and just uh, got here a couple minutes early and looked around. And excited, excited to be here. Excited to be here and talk about money. Uh, I realize that it's possible that not everybody is ex- maybe as excited about it as I am. Uh, I get that uh, where I go. It's... Um, Though I, I also have to say I've never had the Bare Naked Ladies be my warm-up band <laughs> before. And i got to say I love that, so thank you. It's one of my wife's favorite, favorite bands. So. Albert Einstein was taking a train from Princeton uh, to go speak. And back then, you know, the conductor would come through and clip the ticket. And as the conductor was walking through... Dr. Einstein was looking for his and he couldn't find it. And the conductor said, Ah, Dr. Einstein, we know who you are. Don't worry about it. You know, uh, we just, just have a seat. And, and he went on his way. And as he was continuing to clip the tickets, he looked back and Dr. Einstein was looking above and looking below. And, and he ran back and said, Dr. Einstein, really? I, I know who you are. Um, you don't have to worry. And, you know, and so he went on his way and Towards halfway through the trip, he went back to again, and Dr. Einstein's on the, on the ground, still looking for his ticket. And the conductor said, I don't know what to say. I, you know, I know who you are. You don't need to give me your ticket. And Dr. Einstein said, my good man, I know who I am too. I just don't know where I'm going. I need to find my ticket. <laughs> and some of you may be wondering where we're going today with money. Uh, talking about money, so it's it's a hard thing to talk about for most people. Uh, you've probably heard the cliche: it's easier to talk about sex and death and politics than it is to talk about money. Um, and while we think about it a lot, and some of us stress about it a lot, and it's at the root of a lot of problems, it's not talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot, at least in an open and non-judging and honest way. There aren't many safe places to go where we can talk about money. Even us uh, liberal progressives uh, have a hard time talking about money. We'll talk about economic justice, we'll talk about the man, we'll we'll march, we'll protest, but what we spend on food, entertainment, books, vacations, good coffee, that's my issue. Well, that's nobody's business. I want to be clear up front that I don't think money's bad or, or evil. Uh, I think money is a useful institution, but only when we use it as a means rather than an end. I find the best way to explain what we do at Faith in My Network is to say what we don't do. Uh, so I want to start with that. We're, we're not financial planners. You have uh, someone coming today, Lynn Cohen is going to come and talk, and I encourage you to just stay and hear what he has to say about socially responsible investing. Uh, We're not fundraisers. I'm not a fundraiser. I have no secret agenda. Uh, Often I I speak in churches around the country, 
And often somebody will pull me aside and say, you're a ringer, aren't you? You're brought in here to try to get us to give more money. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not a ringer. We don't advise in stewardship or capital campaigns. And most importantly, we don't offer answers to people. We don't give pat answers. Because money is such a charged issue to attempt to try to provide answers for others only um, generates guilt and repression and fear. While we do not offer answers for people, we do, however, ask a lot of questions. Questions like, what is your relationship to money? How does it affect your self-esteem or sense of self? Does it control you? Do you use it to control others? Does your checkbook ledger and credit card statement reflect what you value and what you believe? Could somebody tell by opening it up? How balanced is your giving and receiving? Are you able to receive from others? Sometimes that's the hardest thing for us. Are you impressed by the lifestyles of the rich and famous? Of course, secretly, because it's not the politically correct thing to do, of course, but... What do you hope for most in your life? What do you fear? And how are they bound up with your material life? What are the standards by which you measure the success or failure of your life? How do you decide how much is enough? Are you generous or stingy with your money? How does having more or less money than your spouse or partner or friend impact your relationship with that person? Do you hold assets that might be used to help those who are in dire need? Am I making you uncomfortable? (laughs) My goal is not to make you uncomfortable. It's really just the opposite. Talking about money, being aware of how we relate to money, can help free us from the many money traps we find ourselves in or create in our lives. Connecting our whole lives with our money, my title today, is too important in our daily lives and our relationships to be silenced. The challenge is to allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to talk, kind enough to listen to others without judgment, and open to knowing and being known in this deeply personal and important aspect of our lives. We have a great tool on our website. Um, It's called a money autobiography. Individuals and families and church communities around the, and nonprofits even, use it. It answers a lot of questions. You just look at what you've learned from growing up, from your family, from uh, people who raised you on on, uh, uh, your relationship to money. It's It's on our website. Money's so important in the lives as north in our lives as north americans that it drives our work choices impacts our relationships affects the health of our environment shapes our self Im- image and if you're like me once in a while keeps us up at night the topic of money is a challenging one isn't it when we start to talk about money our personal money and how we choose to use it we tend to get a little defensive It's private information, no one else's business, even to our closest uh, people to us, our family members, our closest friends. We don't want others to know what we have. 
And it doesn't seem to matter if we have a lot or a little. The defensive feelings that are generated are the same. We don't want other people to know about our money, and certainly no one has the right to tell us how to use it. But money has a a very public side, too. People know about us and make judgments of us by the kind of car we drive, the type of house we live in, the neighborhood we reside in, the jewelry and clothing we wear, where our children go to school, the restaurants we eat at. We make judgments and assumptions based on these outward signs of affluence or lack of affluence, don't we? Money has real power. It can educate us, it can make us safer, healthier, and it can even save our lives on occasion. All of this makes money an excellent false god, an idol of sorts. We don't have to look very far to find examples of idolatry of money in this country. I don't know if you saw the poll. It was out last week. My wife was reading it to me. Uh, it said that uh, over 20% of Americans believes that you have to be super wealthy now to even run for president, which is sad to me. In our Western culture, money has become central to who we believe we are. The majority of the interactions during our day involve money transactions stopping for a latte on the way to work, lunch money for the kids, stopping for gas, paying the mortgage, shopping for tonight's dinner, getting into a movie. If we're not careful, we start believing that the things we purchase and own, the outer shell we present to the world, are in fact what constitutes our very being, our very life. They signify our value as people. Certainly the media and advertisers all around us suggest that if you want to be happy and whole and important, we need to drive this car or wear this shirt or drink this drink. How do we resist those pressures? I have two teenagers. It's very, there's a lot of pressure with that. It's a lot of pressure for my wife and I. How do we make life choices grounded in our faith and our values rather than fear. I believe we can only do it together. We have to move together because the outside voices are just too powerful and we're too good at self-delusion. We need other trusted people to say, wait a minute, you know, your worth doesn't depend on your material lifestyle or you seem like you're rationalizing. That's a good one for me. And, or something like, remember you said you wanted to stay you know, um, true to this one commitment you talked about? We need each other. We need other people to remind us of what really matters. And frankly, to help keep us from feeling like we're not crazy by trying to live an alternative story. Faith and Money Network, we help uh, individuals and communities open up the money conversation so it can be a natural, normal part of life together. We want to shift the prevailing tone, or at least move it even more, uh, of the money conversation from a place of fear and self-interest and fault to one of gifts and generosity and abundance. We help people move and grow in three fundamental ways. We encourage people to shift from a mentality of scarcity, 
a sense that I can never have enough or do enough or be enough to a mentality of abundance or sufficiency. The message of scarcity says there's not enough to go around, not enough money, not enough love, not enough specialness, so we better get ours while we can. I, this came really clear to me when my, my son is 18 now, but when he was four, my daughter was born, and we went together to pick him up at Holy Cross Hospital, where your mom used to work, uh, in Silver Spring, and he was so excited about being a big brother, and he was just so, I mean, for the first few weeks, hold, you know, being able to hold her and telling everybody else about, about his little sister. About four or five months later, we're going to the park and we're, we're driving by Holy Cross Hospital. And I said, oh, look, that's where you and your sister were born. And he said, hey, Dad, uh, can we take her back? <laughs> I said, ah. I said, why? And in his way, he said, um, I want to play with you. You know, and he had the, this, we get this stuff early on, the, the, the scarcity stuff. Now, he was only four. Uh, some of us carry it, and hopefully he hasn't carried that totally with him. But it's something we have to fight against, and we need help moving from that kind of thinking to a mentality of abundance. When we live out this abundance mentality, we trust the uh, abundant universe, believing that there is enough, really, uh, of everything for everybody, provided, provided we learn to live within some limits. I believe the pathway from scarcity to abundance only happens in community. Excuse the bumper sticker, but we are the change we wish to see in the world. Secondly, we help people move and grow from a partial to total solidarity. The, the move from, you know, I just I care and love about my family to my neighborhood, to my town, city, to my state, to my country, and to the world. You get to the place where my family is everywhere. People that I read about in the paper, they are my brothers and sisters. This came home to me recently, and probably one of the favorite things I've done at Faith and Money Network. Um, we, one of the things we do is lead trips of perspective and solidarity to places around the world of extreme economic poverty. Haiti and India and Africa and different parts of the uh, Nicaragua. And recently we've been, it's been five years now, um, going to learn from people in your state in the southwest corner, Wise County, Virginia, learning about mountaintop removal strip mining. And um, it's just the most, uh, we, we actually got a flight uh, and could see above over 300 mountains have been just blown, the tops just blown off so they can get the coal in kind of a, they call it greed uh, run amok. Um, and there are some great folks down there that are um, trying to um, keep their way of life. Some of them are four and five generations have lived in those mountains. And um, because of the mining and the way they do it now, um, they can't drink, they can hardly drink the water, they can't play in the streams and creeks and um, it's become a resource colony, really, for for many of us in this part of the part of the world. They've been fighting King Cole, and I wanted to learn more about that, and so I, I uh, offered a trip, and 
two of my friends, African Americans, signed up. They wanted to go. They'd heard about it. And a couple of nights before the trip, they, they looked up where it was and they called me and were being honest and said, Mike, I'm not sure I, I, I want to go. They have rebel flags down there. And will we be welcome? I'm just kind of nervous. And I said, you know, I've been down there. It's going to be all right. Don't worry. Come on. Well, we get down there and and they had told they told me this afterwards, the folks down there, they said, you know, we were we met a week before you came and said to ourselves, what are we getting ourselves into? This group from the city coming down here, probably going to make fun of our language and our customs, and it's, you know, related to a church, what's faith and money. They said, oh, they were nervous. We walked in the door, and um, they saw who we were, and uh, the president of, of, they're called the Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards, Sam's. And he pulled me aside and said, I'm not sure maybe we should play our, our mountain music on, on Friday and Saturday night. I'm not sure they, that maybe your group would like it. And I was reading it between the lines. I, I knew what he was, he was thinking. I said, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We had the most wonderful connection and trip. And they fell in love with each other. And um, to this day, when they come up to, to protest at the EPA or go visit a Congress person, they stay in, in our homes um, we've become the best of friends, and we've uh, been able to move now. And, and my friends said, you know, they'd never met any white people in poverty in their life. They didn't know. They didn't know just because of their experience. And so they have fallen in love, and they go down on their own and stay with them. And they've moved their limited, partial sense of solidarity of what the who my brother and sister is to to expand. And, and that's what we that's what we want to do in our in our work. The third way we help people move and grow is uh, what I call moving from general desires to specific actions. Uh, let me explain a little. I, um, we have, in part of our wider community, we have an alcohol and drug treatment program for, for homeless men and women. And part of that is uh, a 28-day treatment program. And uh, how it works is on, on, on a Monday that we're going to begin a 28-day we tell people who want to get clean and sober to show up, get a meeting slip, an AA and NA meeting slip. There's a thousand meetings a week in Washington, believe it or not. Um, and they need to go to three meetings a day for four days and come back and show us their slip. This kind of as a way to see if they're serious. So we might get 50 or 60 people to show up on a Monday. But on Thursday, half of that or less to show up. So Monday, everybody has the general desire to be clean and sober, but only those who show up and did the work have a specific desire to really get clean and sober. And they, they've made some specific actions. So we want to help people do that. Um, again, if I have a desire to be physically fit, that's great, a general desire, but uh, it's not going to do me good if I don't get off that couch, if I don't quit eating so much fried chicken. If I don't, you know, and I have people in my life to ask me about it and kind of hold me accountable to it uh, in a loving way, of course. So, I mean, I know we need to understand ideas and situations, but all the knowledge in the world without some action goes nowhere. Uh, poet and farmer and activist Wendell Berry, if you know him, he's one of my favorites, he writes this, A change of heart or of values without a practice is only another pointless luxury of a passively consumptive way of life. That's on. If you get an email from me, that's on the bottom of my email because I need it. <laughs> I need that reminder. 
And I would also say and try to encourage folks not to wait until you have it all together before you get started. Um, my 12-step friends say we act our way into thinking right. And I think that's true. true. And I encourage people to lean in instead of uh, instead toward the action and reflection models, another way of saying it, of Latin America. You know, you take action or you reflect on it, and then you choose another action based on what was learned the first time around. And of course, there's no one place to start. Uh, that's kind of our message in terms of this moving towards freedom with our, with our faith and our values and our beliefs around money. And everyone just, we, we encourage people to take your next step. Because everyone's next step is different. Your next step is different if you just got out of college. Your next step is different if your parents are moving into assisted living place or if you have young children. And I too struggle with uh, you know, what it means to be faithful with it. Um, and we, we each uh, need to have our own next step. Um, and we ask that question, what is your next step? Not to look at other people and try to be better than anyone else. We have a joke in our community, Tacoma Park. We get a little self-righteous once in a while, and people say, "You guys are granolier than thou," <laughs> and uh, we try not to try not to be that. So, what is your next step in this money topic in this journey? What's your family's next step? What's your community's next step? I'm not assuming anything. You're probably farther along than my community. But there are no heroes in this work. It's tough stuff. So we encourage people to just say, what would be a next step for me? We have the opportunity and the responsibility to help create a world that works for everyone, a world that promotes fairness and cooperation and solidarity and dignity for all people and care for our earth. C.W. Mills, from his pagan sermon to a Christian clergy, says, In our world, necessity and realism have become ways to hide lack of moral imagination. You know, that's just the way it is, right? There's nothing we can do about it.